Hello and welcome. I am Giles Alderson and this is the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie films to studio films and everything in between. How to make them, how to get them made and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. Today we're talking with brilliant director, writer, producer Zach Lipovsky about how he makes his indie films and how he got a studio movie. Myself and Zach Lepofsky sat down over Skype and had a brilliant chat about his career, about how he makes his indie films. We talk how to co-direct an indie feature film, as well as how to work and audition young actors. We talk about how he cast and directed Bruce Dern and Emil Hirsch, how he was encouraged by Mark Duplass, and how he writes his scripts. We also delve into his brilliant app, Shoplister, which is perfect for indie filmmakers, of which we have five copies to give away. Keep listening and find out how. Plus, loads more. Welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank you for spending your valuable time and listening to us. I'm Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and producer. I directed the feature film The Dare and also directed The World of Darkness, a documentary as well as producing A Serial Killer's Guide to Life and the movie Cassette, all of which should be out this year, except World of Darkness, which is out now if you want to go and see that. And if you want to be on this show... If you have a feature film that is out now or about to be out or you've made it years ago and you want to tell us your story about how you kept going and how you keep making indie films to inspire others out there who are listening right now, then get in touch via Twitter at FilmmakersPod or me at Giles Alderson. All the information is in the show notes or our website, thefilmmakerspodcast.com. Okay, so some of our previous guests' films are out now. People who've been on the podcast in the past... I love this. Either their second film, their third film, or their next film is out now. First up, it's Fizz and Ginger, Matt, uh, Matthew Butler-Hart and Tori Butler-Hart. Their film, The Isle, is out in UK cinemas now. I believe it's out in some US cinemas as well. We chatted to them on episode 29 and 30, yes, that long ago, about their other feature film, Two Down, which is on Sky. They're flying at the moment. Lovely guys as well. They came uh, on to a recent Make Your Film event panel as well. Uh, but their film, The Isle, which is a fantastic gothic folk horror. It's available now. Check it out. Go find it. And also check out the podcast with them, episode 29 and 30, where we go into their history and why they became filmmakers in the first place. Also, the film Cannibals and Carpet Fitters, the brilliant comedy horror uh, by James Bush, director and writer. That film is out now on DVD. Yeah, you can check it out. And you can also check out the podcast with him, which is episode 99. Yeah, a bit closer that one, so you might have heard that recently. But if not, check it out. He's a really brilliant guy, and he talks very honestly about how he made that film and how you can also go out and make a horror comedy as well. So this has been an interesting week for me. Uh, I have been prepping and rehearsing for Boudicca. Now, I've mentioned that in a previous podcast, how I'm working with Anna Rubin and how she and the project raised six grand on Greenlit. It was the first ever project on Greenlit. If you don't know about Greenlit, it's the brand new crowdfunding platform for filmmakers. Uh, and since now we've been rehearsing for that um, today, in fact, while I just before I recorded this podcast, where I've been practicing all the sword fighting and I've been in a couple of scenes with the actors as well. And we're shooting that next week uh, and I can't wait to do that. It's going to be a little teaser trailer uh, and there are going to be two versions. We're going to do a short actual trailer version, two minutes, and then it's going to be a longer seven minute version. Obviously, we'll cut it all down the edit, but I can't wait to shoot that. It's going to be swords. It's going to be... Ah, oh, blood and dancing. And yeah, that period. It's Boudicca. It's going to be brilliant. I can't wait to get my hands on that and get the camera up. Uh, shooting that with Stu White, DOP. Um, got a brilliant cast lined up. More of which I'll tell you about later. So I've been doing that. I've been prepping for Cannes, which is coming up soon. I'm going to be there. If you're going to be there, let me know. Come say hello. It's Cannes. It's going to be going to be fun. That's for sure. There's going to be loads of people who've been on this podcast who are going to be there. And you can say hello to them as well. Friend of the Filmmakers Podcast that you are. And you are. And you are delightful people. And I hope you are now inspired, especially by this podcast and previous podcasts, to go out and make your film. Because you can do it. You really can. There's been so much advice given about how you can do that. And by the way, I just want to throw this in. If you download movies for free, 
I know some of you do. I don't like doing it. I actually haven't got the app on my computer, I'm, but I know good friends who do. If you do, and I understand films do cost money and it's difficult, but if you don't like that, if you actually do this and you don't like the film, please, please do not go on any sites like IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes and say you don't like it or Amazon. Do not dare. If you get that for free, do not dare do that. It's massively disrespectful. It's so hard to make a feature film. And if you know anyone who does that, go tell them off. Do not do it. It's massively disrespectful. And I absolutely deplore it. Um, speaking of which, uh, a Winter Ridge, someone did that and they've given it some bad reviews just because they're idiots. Uh, a couple of um, trolls. So if you've seen that film, even if you haven't, go on Winter Ridge IMDb page and give it a really nice rating. Support indie films. We all need it. Okay, so you can win... Shotlist app. Oh yeah, there's five to give away. Uh, we kind of mentioned it in the podcast, but not fully. So I'm doing it now. Um, all you need to do is tweet at Shotlist app and put at Filmmakers Podcast in there. Say you listen to the podcast and you would love a free copy of Shotlister. And you could be that lucky person. Do it. There's five to give away. It's likely to win it. So get on it. If you want it, this app's brilliant, by the way. Um, Right, let's get to it. No further ado, this is the podcast with the fantastic Zach Lipovsky. You will learn something. Enjoy, relax, and after this, go out and make your film. Do it. Write something. Meet that producer. Get on it. If not, I'll see you in Cannes. Well, actually, we'll see you next week. Because next week's podcast... Wait, who's next week with? Oh, this is exciting. Uh, So what date is next week? Next week is the 13th. Okay, so next week's podcast might be with um, Alberto Sciamma, uh, the director of I Love My Mum, which Matt Huggins produced, and we've recorded a podcast with them. So that might be out next week. Or it could be the podcast with Bert Marcus. Or I might have Jim Cummings coming on as well. Shh, don't tell anyone this is just between us. Yeah, you know Jim Cummings, Thunder Road? Yeah, well, we're in touch. And um, he's coming to the UK to promote his film, Thunder Road. And he... Yeah, he might be coming on the podcast. Shh, don't tell anyone. So anyway, I look forward to all those podcasts coming up. It's going to be super exciting. But for now, here's a podcast with Zach Lepofsky. Enjoy. I am delighted to be joined on the Filmmakers Podcast by brilliant filmmaker and shoplister app co-creator, Zach Lipovsky. Hello, mate. Hi, how's it going? Very good, very good. Now, you're in Glasgow right now. That's right. My very first time. Because you're a Canadian. And I was like, oh, you know, it's great to get Canadians on. It's really nice. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, I'm in Glasgow. I'm like, oh, right. I could have just popped up the road, popped yeah. up the M1 and said hello. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, here for just a few days with the UK premiere of my film Freaks. Amazing. How great's that? How did that come about? Well, the film has been enjoying a pretty good uh, festival run. And the thing I learned is that when you kind of play in a big festival, then lots of programmers from other festivals see it and they, you know, start inviting you. And then you go to other festivals and you meet more programmers. So it kind of just starts a ball rolling and you end up getting to go to all sorts of cool places. Let's talk about Freaks straight away then before we get into your journey, because we're talking about Freaks and you're there promoting it and it's gender bending. Uh, sort of psychological sci-fi thriller. I mean, what do you call it? Yeah, it gives some, a little pitch and we can talk about it. Some people have called it a kitchen sink of genre. Uh, oh, I love that. <laughs> it, has, it has pretty much everything. It's a film about a little girl. She's seven years old and she's lived her whole life inside this house and her, with her father. And he says, if you ever go outside, people will kill you. And she's at the age where she's starting to think maybe that's not true. Uh, things are a little strange and she ends up um, getting up the courage to escape to find out that he's telling the truth. It gets pretty crazy. That sounds brilliant. The genre stuff is because basically the film is told from her perspective. So, you know, when she's scared, it feels like a horror film. And when she's full of wonder, it's it feels like, you know, Spielberg movie. And when she gets bloodlust, it feels like a Tarantino film. So, the you know, it's got a bit of everything. Yeah. And the poster's amazing anyway. It's a hand <laughs> holding an ice cream and it's dripping down. So it's freaks. I'm sure there's other posters too, but this one was like, yeah, this is this is special already. 
Yeah, it's really a pretty, cool. It's a it's a fairly inventive, surreal thriller, but you know, it's also very special because it it has the seven year old girl who's in every scene of the movie and just kind of really holds the film together. And she's acting against you know some you know Bruce Dern who's been nominated for two Oscars and Emil Hirsch yeah. who's an incredible actor and she. You know, she holds her own and shows them how it's done. So it's pretty, it's, it's, it's a real striking performance. How did you get, you know, casting young kids is not easy. It's difficult to get someone six, seven at that age, or maybe a bit older playing younger to actually smash out a performance. How did you get Lexi Collar? Yeah, well, she actually was seven in the movie. Um, and we knew that we were going to film the movie in a very kind of different style and kind of rely a lot on improv and kind of basing things on on basic, you know, real emotions. And so we auditioned doing a technique that we have done a lot of where we we had the girls come in and we were sitting on the floor with our shoes off and had coloring books and just had them come down and like hang out with us. So that sort of the artifice of the audition was, you know, removed and and then we had them you know, you know, there's a lot of arguments with her dad in the movie. So we just said, you know, when was the last time you had an argument with your dad? And what was that? What was that about? And then we would just, you know, they'd say something like, we, well, I uh, didn't, he wouldn't let me go to a sleepover. And so we'd say, okay, well, let's do that. And we'd kind of improvise, basically having a real argument from their real life. And very quickly, within a few minutes, they'd, they'd be tapping into very real emotions, mm-hmm. at least the good ones. And then we would start saying some of the lines from the movie without cutting and the, and the, the best actresses would kind of start to realize what's going on and kind of start improvising around the material of the scene. Um, That's so clever. And Lexi, who, you know, was the best, she, she was, her nostrils were flaring, her eyes were, you know, tearing up. She was screaming at the top of her lungs and we were like, okay, cut, good, good, good. And then she just immediately flipped to being a seven-year-old bubbly girl and she was just like, that was so much fun. Oh, wow, you're a great actor. This is a cool project. And like immediately like flipped back to being a normal girl. And and that was really important too because some kids, you know, could get there but all, but couldn't get back. They would be very like, you know, kind of, disturbed by, yeah by their, well it would take them to that yeah, yeah it takes them to that place where they don't want to go but they don't understand it's acting or yeah it's really tough to find those you know actors young actors who can do that for and sure you seem to have done it here it's incredible i, I did it similar with the dare they were slightly older so mm-hmm. uh 10 upwards to 14 yeah and i did the same thing you got them to improvise those scenes and imagine you're at home you have an argument with your sister and instantly you'd know the kind of person they were by how they would argue <laughs> you know what i mean the, the reactions yeah. from them or they'd say it's not fair and really get angry or they'd do it in a really subtle clever way and you could see who was good it's a really clever technique to work out whether they can snap out yeah of it i mean it, it and it works or... for adults too like you know any, yes. any yeah. actor who's having trouble you know kind of getting somewhere real it's you know it's often you can pretty much you know find some sort of basis in real life for how they should be feeling and try and kind of connect to that you know with with more experienced actors you you have to do that less um but it's always good to to kind of think of it in real terms Yes. I imagine working with Bruce Dern, you didn't have to give him too much guidance. I imagine he was <laughs> Well, he's amazing. very much he's very much always in the moment. Uh yeah. and so and he really connected to um stuff from his life. You know, he uh has a daughter himself and in the movie he's doing a lot of stuff circling around his own daughter. Uh and so we talked a lot about, you know, his experience raising kids and stuff. That's nice. How, I mean, look, getting Bruce Dern, if people don't know who Bruce Dern is, then you need to start working on your indie film, filmmaking <laughs> knowledge. But he's been in Nebraska, The Hateful Eight, The Burbs. You know, this guy's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, you recognize him. He's been acting uh, since he was 19 and he's 83. That's what a career. What a career. So great. So how did you get him and how did you get Emil Hirsch yeah. in your film? Well, you know, brilliant, both brilliant, amazing. You've got some amazing uh, characters. <laughs> so good. It's a pretty, you know, casting a movie is, I think, think the hardest part of making a movie um because it's it's such a difficult thing to do to you know put your put you basically just kind of have to hire casting directors and uh hope that all the actors that you want to hire want to do it and you kind of start making offers and you write letters telling them how 
they're the most perfect person in the world to play this role and you um, send them the amount of money you're hoping to pay them and you send them the script and you just hope that they read it and most of them don't. Um, and <laughs> Wait, yeah, sometimes it doesn't get past the agents. You right. know, table. Well, they're getting or sent emails. scripts yeah. know, all the time. Um, and so you try and think of ways to like, you know, you try and think of actors that you know, someone that knows them or someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows them. And you try and like, you know, do that. And luckily, and Bruce Dern was the first one to kind of come on board. And he he responded to the script, you know, and he responded to that thing about his daughter. And, and he kind of said yes and once we had him, it, it was something else we could tell actors, you know, well, Bruce Stern's coming on board. And um, and that would get a little bit more attention and make it a little bit easier to get more actors. And, you know, it was actually pretty amazing because we wanted to make this movie f originally for zero dollars. And so we thought that we would be the actors in it. Um, so, you know, originally my co-director, Adam, was going to play the father and I was going to play the role that, role that eventually Bruce Dern played. And Adam's son was going to play the kid, which eventually became a girl. And all that, you know, was inspired basically by this speech that Mark Duplass gave, where he encouraged filmmakers to make movies with just what they have, not what they don't have. Because um, most filmmakers are always trying to, you know, make movies that they can't make yet <laughs> because yeah. they, they need more money or they need big explosions or they need something they don't have. And he just said, just, I had a puffy chair in a van and I made a movie about a puffy chair in a van and I went to Sundance and it launched my career. And he, and so, you know, the film really started with kind of that ethos and eventually it kind of started to grow and we ended up getting some money and we ended up being able to get, you know, Oscar nominated actors to play the roles we were going to play. But um, it was crazy, you know, to kind of go along that journey from having nothing to eventually having these amazing actors. That is amazing. Yeah. And it's so true. You get inspired by people in every different way in every walk of life. And he takes one thing. Yeah. I remember uh, Amit Gupta, a director, he said to me, what are you waiting for? Why haven't you made a feature yet before I'd made one? I was like, well, you know, budgets keep going up. He said, fuck those budgets going up <laughs> go make something for what you can make it for yeah it's and the then best suddenly advice. it was best advice it was like yeah right yeah i'll just go do that and i know it's not that simple but it did happen yeah eventually it did happen and yeah. the same thing it's with, still incredibly with difficult but it's actually possible <laughs> yeah it is it is actually possible let's obviously it's amazing to get that cast um and it's amazing what you've done with freaks and what's happening with it the film but obviously you're working with a co-director you've written it with as well adam yep. steen um how is it co-directing something because a lot of people start off thinking they're going to co-direct something in the end they fall out or they they want to do it solo yeah you've made feature film uh, as a co-director how is that Who yeah i mean we we uh have been best friends for over a decade and had worked on a lot of smaller stuff together like web series and short films and stuff and we actually had also directed bigger stuff separately um you know i made i think three films before freaks that i directed by myself and you know the the collaboration that we were having we started mostly on the writing side was just so fruitful and so rewarding and we knew that we were kind of very good partnership like we could collaborate and kind of put ego aside and even in the moments where we disagreed we we immediately saw that the output from those those discussions and um, disagreements were, was always a better idea than either of us could have come up with individually um, and it's a lot easier to co-write than it is to co-direct because obviously when you're you're on set um, it's a much more of a pressure cooker and a thing that's moving quickly but we still just find that the work ends up being so much better um, when we have, you know, both minds on it uh, that we just find it so rewarding. And we've actually just finished co-directing our second film together. Kim Possible. It's a very, di yeah, very different. It's a big budget action Disney movie. <laughs> so it's very different than Freaks. But, um, you know, we were able to show Disney this movie that we had co-directed together and they trusted that, you know, they watched it thinking that, they'd be able to tell which who directed what scene. And when they couldn't, you know, they were like, okay, yeah, let's give it a shot. Because they, um, the group of people we were working with had never hired co-directors before. So I've had that in the past when I was going to co-direct a film with someone. They kind of went, yeah, but we're not sure about co-directors. So yeah. what's the technique? What's the tips and tricks to make yeah. it work? We meet about every 
meeting ahead of time to kind of make sure we're both on the same page so that we are kind of presenting one voice. All the big decisions we try and discuss privately before we present it to producers and crew, just so it seems like we're united. Um, also, it's just easier to have those frank discussions that you have in your head in a more private place. You know, when we're on set, we try and make sure that one of us is being the voice to the actors and crew while the other one kind of whispers in the ear. And that's mostly, again, to try and present a kind of single voice to avoid confusion. Because early on, there'd be times where I would tell someone one thing and then find out that the other, <laughs> my co-director had told them something, someone else, something different. And so we just try and check in with each other as much as possible, like small rules we'd put into place. Like if you've been off set dealing with something, when you come back to set, before you talk to anyone, you know, find your co-director um, because something may have changed or something have may have been said uh, that you're unaware of. And so just check in and whoever's been on set will catch up the other as to what's been going on. Um, and often we have one of us right up next to the camera, next to the actors and kind of right in the thick of it. And the other one of us back at the monitor is kind of looking at the whole thing as a whole piece. Um, and we find that very helpful as well, because sometimes you really need to be up front to kind of get what you need. But at the same time, you, you end up losing sight of the whole picture. Um, and it's really helpful to have kind of one in one person in both places. And that yeah. sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's like having two heads. Yeah. Because well, we, th we like to think of it as twice the director rather than we're each half a director. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's perfect. It's like having that extra voice and you already both know what you're each thinking and saying. So therefore you're already yeah. on the same page and, and like, you know, so we you get whispery to each other. It's a lot of extra work because you have to kind of have a lot of extra mm. discussions and stuff. Like we'll get to set an hour before anyone else and go through every shot of the day uh, on the floor just to make sure that we see it the same way. Because, um, you know, it is harder work, but it, but we think that it, it makes for a better film. I, uh, yeah, I can see the benefits of that for sure. Um, because a lot of directors are control freaks in a good way, you know, and we do want our own vision. And when there's two of you, because I have done it in the past on a short film, you, one of you does have to take the lead with the actors and the crew and the other one has to just be the person whispering in the ear and checking on the images and stuff yeah. and coming up with ideas. But you're right. You can miss things as the director because you're so in it. You're so there and you're trying to get that special bit. Totally. That other voice could literally just go we still need to get that we still need don't forget we have the performance it won't match to that or or, or even close up or. no we do have it you know like there was yes. a moment moment on freaks where adam was basically like uh himself like crying talking to the actress you know because it was a very emotional scene he was connecting with her and really getting her there and we shot this whole you know the climax of the movie and then we cut and he came back and he's like did we get anything <laughs> like he had no idea because <laughs> he was so in the moment and hadn't seen any of the footage and i was like yeah man we got it it's amazing he's like okay great yeah that's amazing i like to hear that it's so lovely. Was there any problems at all? Was there anything where you disagreed? You don't have to tell me too much Yeah, detail, I mean, we, but... we disagree all the time, but we, we always find that it's, those are the moments that are usually the most interesting. Because like if, if we've gotten that far along and one of us thinks, oh, and then he walks to the window and he's like, oh, no, he doesn't walk to the window. He walks to the door. And he's like, no, he walks to the window, remember? Because it's really important because blah, blah, blah. And the other person, no, he walks to the door because it's really important because... You know, he's about to leave his wife. No, he's supposed to be looking out the window at his future. Like, and then what end up usually happening in every case is we go, well, why is it important for you to, for him to be at the window? Because of this reason. And he's like, why is it important for him to be at the door? Because of this reason. Well, what's an idea that would do both those things? And we realize, oh, he should go to the closet. Like, you know, the, the closet, <laughs> you know, is way better than the window or the door. Um, and so when both of us see it separately, usually we try and find a third option rather than one of us is right. Yeah, I like that. It sounds really interesting. It sounds to do a full feature like that would be, I think I'd like it. Yeah, it's it's really, really important that you have the right chemistry with the right person. You know, we I've had partnerships that have fallen through and it's just you got to, you know, it's best to, if you're thinking about it to do small stuff a lot of small stuff first just to make sure that you know that it works because it's like any yes. partnership the chemistry has to really work god yeah you don't want to be on set 
And then you say, oh gosh, you go, oh, this hasn't worked. Yeah. This hasn't worked out. Amazing. It sounds fantastic. Uh, when can people see Freaks? Because I know it's doing the festival rounds at the moment. What's the plan with it? Yeah, um, it's basically doing festivals now and then it's going to come out in the summer. Um, and I think it's, Amazing. Yeah, it's getting some sort of release in the UK. I'm not sure what, but it'll it's hitting theaters in the US in uh, August, probably. Okay, so it's late summer, summertime yeah. release. Oh, I can't wait, cannot wait. Um, and then Kim Possible, which is out now. Yep, Kim Possible right? just I came mean, out, and uh, it'll be you can see it on Disney Now or on Disney Channel. Yeah, how is it making that then? Because that's a Disney film. You've sort of, you know, you've you've had a really interesting career. Let's come back to Kim Possible. Let's sure. go back to your start <laughs> because it's fascinating how you started. You know, you, you've got a really interesting journey you know, what you you got up to and how you did it. And you're a pretty much young child actor, right? I mean, that's how yeah, you started. Yeah, my, my mom was actually a TV producer for kids' shows and mm-hmm. uh, single mom and couldn't afford daycare. So she started getting me into acting so I could be on set with her. Uh, and she couldn't, af- <laughs> she couldn't afford Selfish, actors either. Also, yeah, so I was, I was yeah. good free labor. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and then I got into doing that and got an agent and started acting more professionally. But... It wasn't really my true love. It was more just I loved being on film sets and loved not being at school. And and then, you know, I started kind of early on making movies when I was super young and, and kind of grew up uh, around film sets. And, you know, I was sleeping under the edit suite while my mom would, you know, do cut shows and stuff. And, and then uh, I started making short films and eventually I made a short film, part of a huge shorts competition in, in Vancouver called... Crazy Eights, and that film is a film that I used uh, to get onto a kind of big budget reality show that um, Mark Burnett on, on on the lot, right? Yeah, it was called On the Lot. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was kind of like American Idol for filmmaking uh, in 2007, and uh, it was a huge budget show. It failed dramatically; no one watched it, but it was an amazing. <laughs> oh, it was an amazing experience for me, and, and that's actually where I met Adam, my co-director, and he was a contestant, and out of you know 12,000 filmmakers, they narrowed it down and kept narrowing it, and I came in fifth, and he came in third, and it was actually pretty cool. Like In the top 50, Adam and I you know, met each other, and he had another friend who was there, Sam, and the three of us said, okay, we made a pact. We're like, because we're all against each other, theoretically, we're all contestants. Of course, we, yeah, competition we, at first. We made a pact, like, we're going to be the final three guys, like, let's help each other. And we came in fifth, fourth, and third. <laughs> but then years later, we're kind of, the three of us are the only ones that are really working. And our friend Sam had the world premiere of his film at the Santa Barbara Film Festival just a few weeks ago. And we were had our American premiere of our film there at the same time. That is so great, isn't it? And I, do you know what will have helped you? And maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But the fact that you had that pact, the fact that you were all urging each other and helping each other, yeah. probably really... Because when you're on your own as a filmmaker, it's really hard. It's impossible. And I think it's... It's, and it's great to have people around you, like-minded people, indie filmmakers who are going, no, no, I'll read your script. No, no, I'll help you. Well, that's kind I'm of so- why, you know, On the Lot failed was because, you know, reality shows are are usually good because they're so juicy how much everyone's like backstabbing, yeah, backstabbing each other. <laughs> yeah. And they, they spent like so much money putting like cameras in our house and they apparently spent like a million dollars like lighting the whole outside area of our house and stuff. Wow. And after a, we- a week, they took them all down because we were so boring and so we were just like geeking out about <laughs> editing software and, and helping each other and stuff right so you went from there which is great now yeah you made your short film which did it obviously pushed you into that show and yeah. from there and then, how did you move forward what did you well, do next your full feature-length film tasmanian devils was that is that what you pushed towards next yeah i mean you know i after that it was a huge spotlight and a huge you know apple box to the world to kind of show what I could do. And then it went right in. I had people saying, you're going to be directing, you know, a hundred million dollar movie in six months and, and stuff like that. And wow, it went oh, into gosh. the writing strike of 2007 and the recession of 2008 and nine and 10. And, and suddenly, uh, basically and suddenly, the, yeah. the entire film world basically collapsed and all of the introductory kind of jobs that people would normally kind of cut their teeth on disappeared because there was so little getting made that all the kind of, more experienced filmmakers were taking all the lower down jobs. Um, so basically I didn't work for like four or five years. Um, and, you know, I was 
trying to work. I was writing scripts and making pitches and doing meetings and I do commercials and just like anything I do, could do to stay afloat. That feels like failure that whole time because you're mm. not, I wanted to make a movie and I wasn't making a movie, but I was trying to. But of course, over all those years, what I was actually doing was learning so many skills that eventually are what you know, when I finally got a small break, which was making this kind of cheesy sci-fi monster movie for the Sci-Fi Channel, I knew how to kind of take that first cheesy little movie and turn it into the next movie and turn it into the next movie and start doing bigger and better projects and, and, and trying to, you know, show that off to the world. And so I did this tiny movie called Tasmanian Devils and that was mm -hmm. for the Sci-Fi Channel. And then that led to another movie with Lionsgate that was called Leprechaun Origins, which was a very like... This supposed to be the gritty reboot of the Leprechaun franchise. Um, unfortunately, the people I made that movie with didn't have the movie in the best interests of their minds, and uh, led to led to a movie I'm still very proud of of what we were able to do, but ultimately not a great movie. And but I learned a huge amount and got to do my first studio movie, and that led to another studio movie, which was called Dead Rising, which was an adaptation of a video game. Uh, and that movie mm. I think is actually pretty good. It turned out really well, and they did a sequel to it and stuff. Um, and that was the first time I was really able to like have a little bit more creative control on something. It was still fairly low budget, but it turned out really well. Yes. No, it was. Well, talk about that when making and sort of you went from indie films to studio films and the difference there and not feeling protected potentially. But if you can remember any sort of tips from that time. and I mean, really what you need to learn is like, because there's the filmmaking part is always fairly easy. You've got people around you and they're... But the hard part you're learning is kind of working with executives and kind of shepherding something creatively when you're not, when you don't have final say. You know, there's good things and bad things. Like when we made Freaks, Freaks was made because we wanted to make some right of film and have a film that was truly our voice and our say. But then we went off to do Kim Possible, which was a giant franchise movie with a huge amount of executives and studio control. But we learned so many more things about how to kind of stay in charge as much as we could creatively, but while playing nice with, you know, the rest of the, the kind of empire that you've signed up for in a way um, they both have a lot of virtues. Like I've always found a lot of people ask me like, should I only do indie stuff where I'm creative in, in control or should I just sell out and do big stuff and make money? Um, and I've always found doing both is, is, is the way to go. Cause Doing one or the other, I have have friends that do one or the other, and they always seem sort of uh, unhappy. Like the ones that are just doing their passion projects are often struggling so much uh, and having to take jobs they hate and sometimes never even getting their thing off the ground ever. Um, and other friends that do just the you know TV or studio stuff, they're never they're never that creatively fulfilled. Um, but they have huge houses and have a lot of resources to make their stuff. Um, and I've found that by doing both, you actually end up helping both, you know, on freaks, we ended up getting a huge amount of resources to make freaks because we had done a, a TV show for Disney beforehand. And so many of the resources of that show made freaks better, um, way bigger budget looking than it could have been because of all the connections from doing the, the Disney thing. And then, we were able to show Disney the movie that we had written. So they took us as creative authors way more seriously. And so they ended up giving us a lot more creative control than we would have gotten otherwise, because we, then if we had never done something that, you know, we had created just ourselves, because if we'd only ever done stuff for hire, they wouldn't have necessarily seen us as, you know, creative authors that had created something that was having a lot of critical success. So it's great to be able to do both because they both help each other. Yeah, it must be amazing to do both. How do you so? How do you go from one to the other then? In terms of, obviously, it helped you've done the TV series Mech X Four. Is it because you're making shows like this that it's easier to pitch? Because I think a lot of uh, indie filmmakers want to know how they go from one film and then get another one made. Because it's yeah. all well and good making one, which is hard enough. But how then do you make? How do you keep those connections and and how do you meet the right producers to to get your next one made? Yeah, I mean, it's always hard. You know, even for hugely successful people, they struggle to get their next ones going. Um, it's it's that's the battle of signing up to be a filmmaker is it's a huge struggle to to get movies. But you can do things to kind of, you know, get the odds in your favor a little bit more. You know, one thing is the whole town and the whole industry just 
as much as it's a joke, they, they want to work with people that, you know, everyone else wants to work with. Um, so you need to kind of fake the fact that everyone else wants to work with you <laughs> or be prepared for the times where you think everyone might want to. For example, if you've just made a short film that's at a certain festival, make sure you have your script or your idea of what your next thing is that you want to do so that if someone comes up to you and is like, wow, that was amazing. What are you doing next? You can say, well, actually, I'm doing this next and I would love to have you involved rather than, oh, I don't know yet. I'm figuring it out. So like we do a lot of thinking about, okay, our movie Freaks is coming out on this date. That means we need our next project scripts ready by this point or, you know, the Kim Possible is happening at this moment. So we need to make sure we can pitch Disney something else, but at this moment, so that just at the moment they're the most excited about us, we can use that excitement to get something else. Um, and so it's a lot of kind of being prepared for when opportunity will strike. Yeah. Cause you never know when an opportunity will open its door, but if you're not ready for it, it'll close the door again. <laughs> and so yep. you, um, it's a tough thing. It really is. It never I, gets I, that's easy though. Great advice. Yeah, it's not easy, but you're right. You have to have the next project ready. And people don't. It's kind of crazy. They go, oh, no, I'll wait till it comes out. I'll even wait if you till don't, it does well. Even if you don't, just lie. lie. Just lie. Like, just straight just up lie. lie. Yeah. Just straight yeah, up go, lie. If I've someone got comes a sci-fi. Up, I've got a drama. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I'm writing it right now, but I'll, I'd love to share you the script as soon as it's ready. It'll be ready, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically next week. And yeah, then, I'm then, just doing a then, re, I'm just doing a rewrite. Yeah. yeah, I'm doing a rewrite. Got some great notes. It'll be ready next week, and then just start writing a script that you hand in next week. Like, you <laughs> you you have to 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 jump on that. Yeah, you do. You, I mean, you write a lot. How do you go about writing your scripts? Then do you have a specific structure? Do you yeah, think we about do, it? Do you, treatments. Yeah, we do a massive amount of like the first draft of Freaks. We did probably three months of outlining and then we wrote the first draft in five days <laughs> like so basically we <laughs> totally, can do that yeah well, and it was a terrible first draft but we we believe heavily 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 in not starting the process of writing the script itself until the very last moment where basically you you know everything uh mm-hmm. because we because once it's starting to write a script, your brain just wants to make it like perfect and wants to make it like, okay, now it's a script. Now it's a real thing. Whereas when you're mm-hmm. at the, when you're outlining, you can, you can change anything and brainstorm on anything. We use a whole different bunch of stuff. We, we do, we do boards where we use storyboards, not, not boards as in drawn pictures, but storyboards as in a card for each beat of the movie. So you can see the whole movie in one picture on the, on the wall. Um, and we move things around there. We track all sorts of different elements in every single scene, like what the conflict of the scene is, you know, how, what's visual in the scene, what, what each character wants, how, why is the scene important? And like many, many different elements. We make sure we have an answer for that in every scene. When we're writing, cause we're co-writing, we're, we kind of weave it together almost like a zipper. So like he'll write the first scene, I'll write the second scene, he'll write the third scene. And we, we kind of constantly rewrite each other. The biggest secret though is like, is iterating. You know, we feel like in, you know, I've been talking a lot of filmmakers about it, but basically this idea where fail early as fast as you can and start testing it. So basically um, when we wrote that first draft of freaks, we, we were like, okay, we've got this super like awesome outline. This movie's going to be amazing. And then we're like, uh, cause Adam has a family, like let's go to a cabin for five days and just like write the whole script. And his wife was like, well, if you're going to go to a cabin with your best friend for a week while I look after the kids, I'm going to organize a reading of that script for the day you get back because you're not coming back without a script. <laughs> yeah, you're not just going to come get all oh, procrastinate. Yeah. Go, oh, well, uh, we yeah, just sort of yeah, we're working on it. It's cool. It's coming chat. together, you know, like, and so, <laughs> and so we came back with a script and we did a reading and oh, everyone was that. like, Everyone was like, so what happens in the movie? <laughs> like, it was like totally, <laughs> we thought, oh, we nailed it. This is amazing. And then everyone was like, this sucks. And so, which was so helpful. So then we rewrote the script for a month and did another reading and it was a little bit better. And then we spent another month, you know, rewriting and we did another reading and it was even better. And, you know, we kind of took that process of, it's kind of how Pixar makes movies and mm. it's a lot how, you know, I do stuff in tech and it's how technology there's been a big revolution in the tech sector called agile development, which is basically doing quick iterations over and over and over again, um, where you rather than you know spending a year to make one piece of software, you make every two weeks you make it. And that allows you to learn and get feedback right away. And we did the same thing 
you know, through editing, we did a test screening every weekend for like three months. So we'd like show the movie to five people, edit all week, show the movie to five people, edit all week. And it would, you know, people would say that, you know, the beginning's really boring. And then you'd like spend all week changing the beginning and then play it again. And they'd be like, you know, the beginning's really boring, like a whole new group of people. <laughs> and so you, you would know, okay, we haven't fixed it yet. Or they wouldn't understand something and you would add in a bunch of, you know, temp voiceover or something to fix it. And then they, and then the next group of people would totally get it. And so you'd know, okay, we fixed that. Yes. Um, and so that's sort of the essential, you know, a lot of people watch movies and they watch our movie and they assume that we're like these auteur geniuses that just like birthed a perfect movie into existence, but they don't see the like two years of all the bad test screenings and readings where people didn't understand anything. So true. That, that first cut is always horrible. The first test screening, you literally, your sweat's pouring off you because you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's not finished. It's not well, ready. Well, we've learned... We've learned to not sweat it, to actually look at it. We're, we're now excited every time we, we do it because we don't know what we don't know. And we know how much better it gets each time we do it. Um, so like we just were writing a new project. We just did a reading um, last week. It was our first draft. And I couldn't wait to do the reading because I'm like, I have no idea what, like, I don't have any more notes on this script. Like I can't, I have nothing else I want to do with it. But I know in like three hours from now, I'm going to have a massive list of all the things I want to do to change it. Um, and that's so valuable. So yeah, uh, we've, we've changed our minds. It, you definitely have to be egoless and, and do a lot of listening instead of defending. But um, it makes the product so much better. Do you know what? I need to learn that. I need to, um, yeah, I need a few more movies, I think, and I'm about to get to that stage. <laughs> but well, people always go, they'll be like, I didn't get that. Like, what was that about? And You'll want to explain it, but you can't. You have to say, well, what did you think it was? <laughs> because you need, because what they th thought it was is so valuable. You need to know what it is that they're thinking. And sometimes near the end of a test, this happens every time. Then I start opening up about what it is we wanted to do. And I'll say some detail and they'll be like, oh, that's really good. Why don't you put that in there? And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. why don't I put that in there? <laughs> why don't I make that more clear? Um, so it's just a very, very valuable yeah. part of the process. Yeah, it is, it is valuable. And it is so important. What I like to do is share it with my pals as well. People I trust who give me honest feedback, editors I know, filmmakers, directors, producers to go, look, what's your honest opinion? And I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, all up. And we usually that. start, we start with like filmmakers like that, mm -hmm. that are really good at, you know, cause usually things are so rough that you can't show it to you know, audience members that don't know what a rough cut looks like. Yeah, yeah, but can't. as we get further and further along, we show it to less and less, you know, industry people to the point where we'll do screenings with just total civilians. And, you know, in some ways that's easier because they're a lot less, for, they're a lot more forgiving than filmmakers. Filmmakers will nitpick stuff like crazy forever. Yeah. Also when they don't get something or they, or they don't like something, it's even that more, much more relevant because you know how not picky they are. Yeah, that's really good. That's great advice. And I, I definitely like that. I think it's, it's really important to do test screenings and make sure your film is right. I mean, sometimes you can't afford it. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to go, oh, we can't do reshoots or we but also can't afford like, to go back in the edit. But most of the right. time you can. But you can change, it. you can change so many things. And it's, and it's important to show it to multiple, the same thing to multiple people. Like don't, often when you've got a script, you send it to one person and get their feedback and then change it and send it to someone else. Um, then get more feedback you, you and put, pretty much change it back. And, and, <laughs> and change, yeah. and, well, change it again. And what you're, what you don't want to do is change it based on individuals. You want to change it based on basically what your taste is and what the group is experiencing. Um, cause like, especially with freaks, you know, the movie's a mystery and has a lot of mystery elements and, different people pick up on different parts of the mystery as the movie goes on. We would, as we did a lot of tests, we learned like 20% of the audience has figured it, figured out that part by now. Mm. And no, the other 80% hasn't figured it out yet. And by this point, 80% of the audience has figured it out, but still 20% of the audience is still hasn't figured it out. And then by this point, so it's like this moving bell curve. Yeah. And so to, if you just show it to one person, you may, you're only getting one sample size and they might say, Oh, I knew by page 10, mm -hmm. but yep. 
most people might not know till till page 50 so, and you might make a change that ruins it for all those other I people. totally agree. Some people are more uh, perceptive to this sort of thing especially with twists or turns especially in, in the dare which is a horror and people go oh no I got it straight away you go yeah, yeah. but 9% didn't you're more perceptive to this you're looking out for it but other people aren't so yeah you've got to be careful but yeah, uh, yeah it's interesting to listen to Well everyone. it's good to keep them all in mind like I don't think like you can't make it for everyone, but you can keep in mind kind of different movies that are happening at the same time. Like this is the movie that's happening for the people that got it right away. This is the movie that's happening for people that haven't yet. And, and making sure those are both rewarding movies. Okay. So uh, did you do that on Kim Possible then quite a bit? Obviously it's Disney, so it's studio. Yeah. Uh, but did you do exactly the same technique there? We did it a little bit less because there's more oversight from, from Disney. Um, and also the movie was more straightforward. Like the plot was more kind of linear. So it was easier to know when things were working or not. But we did, you know, we invited friends. In that case, we brought them into the edit suite so that no footage, you know, left the, the asylum of the, of the legal element of the edit suite for Disney, but we brought in filmmakers and showed them. And, and on Disney, in that case, it was, you know, it's a movie for teenagers and eight year olds and stuff. Mm. So we brought, we had people bring their kids. Um, and the funny thing about like 12 year olds is without even like telling them to just because they're 12 year olds, they talk to each other the entire movie <laughs> because there's like, they're just used to like talking yeah, and and course. so you're getting like a live you're getting this like live feedback yeah um yeah they're like oh oh no i'm really oh how that's gonna go horribly what is she thinking oh oh man that was so funny wasn't that funny oh i love that i love that character he's so funny and like and so you're just like it was so useful it's like almost wish that you know Adults All people were, like were that, that way. But. Yeah, I've been honest. But then they go, God, this is horrible, isn't it? This is a really bad right. bit. Who directed this? Are they in the room? <laughs> uh, yeah. Suddenly you sneak out. Yeah, no, but I agree. Kids are amazing for that. And they're very honest. They'll tell you if they like it or not. They don't care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it's a clever thing to do. So making this Disney show then, um, like you say, it's it's aimed at, you know, eight to 13 year olds, if you like, it's for the Disney channel. But yet you have, again, you got some great people in it, some great actors, Alison Hannigan, obviously yeah. from Buffy and from American High. And yeah. And you've got yeah, and Patton Pat Oswalt. Oswalt. I mean, for some, yeah. some great, who was in young adults. So some great cast. Then you've got a young youngster. Sadie Stanley was your lead as Kim Possible. Yeah. Again, you're working yeah, with and youngsters. She's, she's pretty incredible. Like mm. Sadie, um, her audition for Kim Possible was her first audition ever. Really? Um, and wow. you know, 12 months later after her first audition ever, she was on the red carpet, you know, being interviewed by top, you know, reporters and magazines all around the world on her, you know, amazing performance in the movie. Like it was pretty life changing for her, yeah, yeah. um, but she, she really did an amazing job and it was cool to kind of shepherd her through that. Yeah. I can imagine that. How was it doing the action then? How was it doing all that kind of stunts and, you know, it was pretty amazing. Mm. Like it's a, it's a Kim Possible is kind of like a you know, James Bond, but with teenagers. Yeah. So the, you know, we got to shoot set pieces, like one set piece we shot over five days. So like shooting an action scene in five days is a lot different than usual when we're, I'm used to shooting them in five hours. Um, and so that was awesome. And we had some of the best, um, you know, stunt teams that I've ever worked with, um, being able to, to really pull off stuff that, you know, one stunt make might might take two hours to do but when you have more time like that you can you can build towards these big moments that are that are really cool when you're doing fight scenes it's very easy for the, you to be fighting because you're fighting um, which makes for very boring scenes and so you always have to really think about you know what the goal is of this fight what you know it's it's one of the big differences between like the first matrix movie and the second matrix movie is like a lot of the fights in the second matrix movie are just fighting because they're fighting like he walks into a room and someone's like fight me and they just fight and you don't even know why yeah um whereas in the first matrix movie every fight there is an incredibly clear goal it's like we need to get to that door we need to you know save morpheus so he can jump out this window we need to whatever it is like um there's always needs to be a very very clear goal and i learned that by mistake in a lot of early movies i did you might have the best some people in the world that can do the most incredible stuff, but they're still usually not storytellers. Mm. And so you have to like remind them a lot. Like this fight is about this. They're fighting to prove this or to get this. Um, 
like you can put in cool flips and stuff, but as long as it's allowing them to get closer to this button because the button will save their friend or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, um, figuring that out. Love it. And Kim Possible is available now uh, around the world. Yep. I take it for people to watch around the world, probably in like fifty different languages. <laughs> you know, yes. The thing with Disney is they 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 put it all over the planet, um, which which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. One of my um, co-hosts and good friend, Dan Richardson, who we're doing the Food for Thought documentary at the moment, he was in a Disney show and uh, it's called The Lodge. And yeah, he just said it's a different world. It's a totally different world, uh, but it's amazing. Well, especially like this movie is based on a very popular series called Kim Possible. Mm -hmm. Um, It was basically the most popular um, cartoon like 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. So like everyone who's like, 18 to 25 now are probably very, very, very familiar. And probably a lot of them, we have, there's like millions of super fans out there. So that was an interesting part was kind of, not only are we making a movie for, for eight year olds today, but we're making it for 25 year olds today. Which is really um, interesting because they'll be reliving yeah. their youth a little bit. But I don't remember it like that. A little bit like the Harry Potter books. Yeah. Just like, well, that's yeah. not how I remember it in my head. So that must've exactly. been tough. Yeah. It was very tough. I mean, you know, as they've seen the movie now, they've all kind of seen that we made it with a lot of love and made it, you know, as fans of the series and the original creators were involved. And they, I think as they've seen the movie, they realize we didn't ruin their childhoods. Oh, well done. Well <laughs> done. Well done. That's amazing. Um, before we talk about what you're doing next, let's talk about Shotlister. Because this is an app yeah. that helps filmmakers uh, crewing, scripting, working on set. I made it when I was making Tasmanian Devils, that first film, because I couldn't believe that there was no way of, no standardized way of making shot lists. Um, and shot lists seem like a very simple thing, but they're actually like incredibly critical to like uh, when you're shooting something, because it's it's the list of what you're doing and what you're doing next. And everyone was just kind of using Excel sheets, which works for like a short film or something. But in a movie, there's like a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred shots. Mm-hmm. Most people would print it out on a piece of paper. And then obviously things always change when you're shooting and you need to be able to kind of change the plan. Um, and you end up scribbling all over the paper or doing math in the corner of the margins so as you're trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very stressful. And so what Shotlist allows you to do is not only build a shot list, but create a shooting schedule that's based on a shot by shot and kind of minute by minute basis. So it, 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 you, you put into it how long you think each shot is going to take kind of like you do with a one liner for scenes. Yeah. Um, but for actual shots and that a lot, and then it knows what time it is when you're shooting in it and it tells you how well you're doing. And as the, as you start slipping behind, you can just very quickly change the plan and get back on schedule and make sure that you get the important stuff first rather than at the end of the day when you're screwed. Um, and then it allows you to share it with the whole crew and, um, you know, and, and it, it just kind of standardizes and improves, um, making shot lists and creating shooting schedules. It's kind of like the final draft of shot lists basically. Yeah. And you can get it on iTunes. Now the app, you can just click the link and yeah, get it. you can get it on, you can get it on iOS, Android and Mac OS. Yep. I have it. I love it. So cool. Yeah. Um, really enjoy it. And if anyone hasn't heard of this, go check it out, shotlister.com, and you can find out all about it uh, and how it can help you yeah. as a filmmaker and on set and, and really useful. And, you know, we could give some away too. How about if anyone, you know, tweets at us about this podcast, uh, we'll pick some of them and give them a copy. Wow. There you go. So how many are you going to give us? Someone. <laughs> well, let's do, let's do five. Whoever shares this, uh, this podcast and uh, mentions, you know, both of us. Yep, we'll uh, we'll pick five five of them and give away some copies. Love that, right, guys? There you go. It's simple. You get your free copy. <laughs> um, I didn't get mine free, so do you know what I mean? It was uh, I, I got mine too early. <laughs> I, I heard about it before we got in contact ages ago, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm up yeah. for that." Great. So that is um, shortlister app. Get involved. Get it. Filmmakers do it. Um, let's talk about what's next for you then. As you mentioned before, when you're making a film or you're about to release a film, you're talking about what you're doing next. So Kim Possible is out. So I yeah. imagine that was towards Freaks or maybe you had bits and pieces then. Freaks is coming out. So what's next? Yeah. Well, uh, now I got to lie and say that I'm, I've got a script. There I'm you just go. About to two, well, give, no. give me two days. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, the, we're, we're basically in writing mode now. We, we're trying to turn freaks into a TV series and we're making some pretty exciting kind of 
strives towards that. So we're currently writing the pilot of the Freaks TV series. We also uh, sold an idea to Disney Plus, which is Disney's new kind of Netflix yeah, competitor that they're, that they're building. Yeah, it's massive. Because they really enjoyed the process of making Kim Possible and they really wanted to work with us again. And, and they were sending us scripts that weren't really right for us. And we said, well, how about we write one for you? Um, and because we had freaks, we could point to something that we had written that people liked. And they said, yeah. So we pitched them an idea and they, they've, um, they got really excited about it. So we're, we're writing and directing that. Um, so basically probably for the rest of the year, we'll just be, we'll just be in writing mode. So congratulations. Your career is going from strength to strength. I'm proud of you. You've done so well. Um, well, thank you. You've done really well. I'm really looking forward to seeing freaks. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Um, really excellent. Yeah. It's a pretty special movie. Yeah. Great, I can't wait. And obviously I'll be pushing this podcast out again and tweeting about Freaks when that comes out in the summer. Look out for that as well. Um, where can people follow you uh, online then? Where can people find you? Well, for Shotlister, they can go to shotlister.com uh, or they can uh, find us on Twitter or Facebook at, you know, at Shotlister app. And then for me, it's uh, Zach Lepofsky, which is my name, L-I-P-O-V-S-K-Y. Uh, and that's, you know, on all the other Instagram mostly is where I post stuff and um and twitter so uh they can find me there magic with that in mind do, have you got any final bit of advice to filmmakers coming up like yourself when you start to make stuff what what would a little bit of advice for, for sure. them to move forward with their career i would say the main the main thing especially when you're coming up is to remember to just keep making stuff what happens to most people is you make a first few things and you start getting some success and people start recognizing that you're good at what you do. And then you, you set your sights really high. You're like, okay, well, the next thing I want to do is make a feature and you should like start preparing to make that feature. Or you want to make a short film with a big crew that isn't your friends or whatever it is that you want to do. And what happens is you end up stop making anything because you're putting all your effort into trying to jump to the next rung of the ladder. And what can end up happening is like suddenly a year goes by or two years goes by and and people stop thinking of you as a filmmaker because you have stopped making film. So many of the opportunities in my life that have come have come from places I could have never predicted, but they, and they came to me because they knew I made stuff and made stuff that they liked. And they knew that because I was making a lot of stuff. And so I was kind of sending out into the universe what I like to do. You should still try and make stuff that's beyond what you can do now, but don't forget to continue to make stuff that you can because that's how people will, when something comes across their desk and they read it and they go, ooh, who should I get to, to direct this or write this or whatever? Um, if they've just seen something you've done, they're way more likely to call you rather than something you did three years ago. Um, so you kind of just have to stay active. Love that advice. It's so true. Yeah. Even if it might not be the level you want it to be, I say you just go make it because you learn something every yeah. time as a director, producer, screenwriter. Just get on with and it. And you meet people. Like uh -huh. so, Almost every job I've ever had has come from a relationship. Um, even the first thing I did with Disney, you know, now I'm writing this huge budget movie for them. Mm -hmm. And that's because I did Compossible. And that's because I did a series for them. But the way that I got that series was this woman I had taken out for lunch every year for 10 years because I thought she was really cool and she, she was an executive and I just wanted to stay in touch with her and I took her out for lunch every year and then she was out for lunch with someone who worked at Disney and they said hey we need someone from Vancouver who's got visual effects skills that can do this but we but we can afford so they can't be too famous and she's like oh I know the perfect guy that's led to all sorts of crazy opportunities from that one lunch. And so it's all about the people that stay, you know, in your network. Totally true. Get inspired by listening to Zach. He's absolutely right. Get out there, make your film, meet people, make it happen for you. Only you can do that. No one's going to come and knock on your door if you've not made anything. You've got to get out there and do yeah. it. Yeah, and tell them and make the movie that only you can yeah. make. Don't try and make a movie that that you think will be successful. Try and think of the the one perspective you have that's different than everyone else. Oh, I love that. Um, you know, yeah. the job, the job you worked at that no one else knows about or your relationship with your family or the place that you live or, you know, your perspective because of your ethnicity or whatever it is, just figure out your perspective and make that unique because that's there's so many other filmmakers that's the only way you'll stand out wonderful wonderful thank you so much zach this has been incredible thank you you can follow us at filmmakers pod on twitter find us on itunes on or oh, wherever you can get a podcast we're on it 
because I know it takes an effort to put it up to all these bleeding places. It's there. <laughs> you want to listen to it? Go find it. You're already listening to this, but if you want it on another device, Spotify or wherever, you can find it. We're mainly on Podbean. That's our platform. Or if you want a whole back catalogue of all our podcasts, go to filmmakerspodcast.com where they'll all be. Um, so you can follow me at Giles Alderson and you can follow uh, Food for Thought at Food for Thought, the number four, or at The Dare Movie. If you've got any questions, if you want to be on the show, if you want to be like Zach and inspire people and talk about your film, then get in touch. You can find us on Twitter and send me a direct message. I will get back to you. And don't forget, you can win your copy of Shotlister. All you got to do is tweet at Filmmakers Pod and at Shotlister and say you love this and you want a free copy. And the nicest person who says the nicest thing will get a copy. Um, be nice. Why not? Hey, while you're at it, do a nice review on iTunes. If I see that, you're definitely winning it. 100%. Okay, so next week's podcast, like I say, could be with Alberto Shama, or it could be with Jim Cummings, or it could be with Bert Marcus, or it could be with Stephanie Joland from Frenzy Films. Mm, could be with Jane Gull. Oh, yeah, we've got loads coming up for you. We've got loads of really cool podcasts coming up for you. You're going to enjoy. The next show is out Tuesday, as always. So we'll see you next Tuesday. But remember, being prepared is everything. You can make your indie film, but know who your audience is and get out there and do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to do well and rise up, it's your duty to send that elevator back down. <laughs> Very true. Zach, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great great experience absolute pleasure thanks everyone take care go out there and get your filmmaking dream alive till next time bye bye this was a podcast from the pod fix network you can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com